tonight we're going to talk about the foundational years and literally what the foundational years are is a window of opportunity that there can be a holistic foundation and what do I mean by a holistic foundation that is when we can impact a child body soul and spirit that literally identity and destiny can be established in the hearts of children in this first window of opportunity which is conception through three years old and we do that one baby at a time and you know what if we do that it's going to last a lifetime what takes place in the heart of a child in the first three years of life will change the whole course of their life and the first place that that's done is in the home we have got to protect the home the home is the most foundational place to establish identity and destiny in the life of a child in um Malachi 2.15, it says, And did he not make one, yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one? Why did God establish marriage? What is one reason that your marriage was established? Why? He made you one so that he seeks a godly seed. Do you realize God has brought a man and a woman together in marriage to make them one so that there can be a godly seed? That's powerful. God obviously recognizes that when a father and a mother come together in oneness and in unity in the things of God, in the ways of God, in the character of God, that literally the byproduct is going to be godly seed. And that godly seed is going to rise up and grow and mature and fulfill destiny, connect with another person who is radically committed to God, and literally we're going to see from generation to generation righteousness established in our nation. It's powerful. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. What a powerful scripture. See, what happened is wives would be going and they would be wetting the altar with their tears and they were crying out to God because their husbands were treating them unrighteously. Their hearts were being broken in the way because of their husbands' treatment of them. Now, in today's society, it's not just men's treatment of women, but women's treatment of men. And see, when there isn't that unity in the home, listen, it's going to affect the seed. It's so important that there's a protection over the home. Children will not heal the home, but the home is to raise godly seed. There's a young girl. She just wants to be loved. She just wants to be valued, so I'm going to get married. And she chases after, chases after, finds a man to marry her, and guess what? It doesn't fill that void on the inside of her. It doesn't meet that need on the inside of her. So I know what? We'll have a baby hoping that having that baby will heal her, will meet her need, will heal the home. But God does not give us children for them to heal us. It's like a child is born, and it's almost like they're born with an empty cup, and we have a, res a responsibility as fathers and mothers to fill that cup with identity and destiny and value and trust and literally establish in them what they need, having their needs met. A child isn't to meet the needs of the parent. The parent is to meet the needs of the child. There's a spiritual and an emotional connection between parent and child. And I could spend a lot of time on this, but when a parent is impacted, it will also affect the child for good or bad. Simply, if you have parents that are radically sold out to the kingdom of God and their stability and security in that home, that child is going to be stable and secure. If parents are unstable and fearful and tormented, guess what? That child is going to be unstable, fearful, and tormented. 
What is taking place in the home will pass down to the child, good or bad. So we must recognize that we have a responsibility of parents. In Exodus 20, 5 and 6, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them. This is talking about idols. Nor serve them, for I the Lord thy God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers unto the children, unto the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. Simply, the unrighteousness that's in my life, the unrighteousness in my home is going to be passed down to the third and fourth generation. My children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, my great-grandchildren are going to be affected by the things that I allow in my life. That's scary. What is iniquity that's passed down? Iniquity is simply the propensity to sin. We know when there are parents who are alcoholics, that's not passed down to the baby, naturally speaking. But how many children will become alcoholics because the parents were alcoholics? It's because there's a spiritual dynamic that if there's something in the lives of the parents, it will impact the children's destiny. So we must look and recognize that we have a responsibility in our home, recognizing that there is that connection between us and our children. And if we make the most of this window of opportunity and reckless abandonment to the Lordship of Christ, being willing to pay whatever price that our children can rise and fulfill destiny, we will be in the last part of this verse and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. God says, if you love me and you keep my commandments, I'm going to show mercy unto you. My government is going to be in your family. My protection is going to be in your family. The care and the preparation for your life is going to impact your family if you love me and you keep my commandments. It's powerful. Are we perfect? Is there a perfect parent? I don't know of one. I definitely was not one. But the fact is, if I love my God and I purpose to keep his commandments, it'll cause a godly seed to rise up out of me and it'll be perpetuated from generation to generations. That's why the enemy has a plan to destroy the home to hurt the children. Presently, the divorce rate is increasing at an astounding rate, and close to 50% of children are growing up in a single-parent environment. One out of every two children only have one parent. Children need their parents in order for them to develop physically, mentally, and emotionally. If the bond between the parent and the child is broken, negative consequences can be a result and can be traumatic for a child. I have a passion to pour into a young generation. And so much of what we deal with is the hurts and the wounds that came from being in a one-parent household, coming out as a product of divorced families. It hurts. It wounds the heart. But we have a, a responsibility and an honor to reverse that thing. Now, I encourage everyone listening to this CD to go into the portion of your quipping tool and find the presentation slides for this so that you can see all the research and study it out even more. Brian Willett says, what increased alongside the nation's divorce rate was the number of children involved in divorce. Not long ago, a couple experiencing marriage difficulties would often stay together merely for the sake of the children. I know in the generation I grew up, there was not a lot of divorce. Mom and dad stuck together. Well, we'll do it for the kids. We'll raise the kids. 
But today, children are increasingly seen as secondary to the perceived personal needs of the spouses. Since 1972, one million American children every year have seen their parents divorce. Adults and children are at increased risk of mental and physical problems due to marital distress. When there is problems in the home, not only will it affect the children, but it affects the adults with mental and physical problems. That affects children. Half of all children will witness the breakup of a parent's marriage. Of these, close to half will also see the breakup of a parent's second marriage. How is this impacting the children? Whether divorce or preoccupation, a child cannot be left to himself. In Proverbs 29, 15, it says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings his mother to shame. What is reproof? It is correction, and I love this part, and this is in the Hebrew, even in reasoning. A father and a mother taking time to reason and teach and train and instruct and correct. Correction is simply course direction. You're going in this direction, that's not a good direction. We're going to turn you back to the right direction. When you do that, it'll literally empower that child to succeed. When you don't do it, the Bible says it'll bring the mother shame. Talking about Eli in 1 Samuel 3.13 for I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. Here his children were in sin. They made themselves contemptible in the eyes of God, but he failed to restrain them. When we do not restrain someone from doing evil, when we do not restrain our children from doing evil or disobedience or things that are contemptible in the eyes of God or things that break the law of God, it will release an empowerment to fulfill in our our lives and in our children's life. We don't want to do that. Look, we have three choices as parents. Number one, a choice to be committed, seeking first the kingdom of God. Are we going to raise our kids to seek God first? The only way they're going to see that is if we model it. We can't say you got to seek God and we don't seek God and fulfill our destiny as parents. Now you think about this. If there is generational blessing, which we're going to talk about, it is imperative that I fulfill my destiny so I can build a platform for my children to fulfill their destiny. So it's so important that I obey God, I walk in the ways of God, I model Christ, I model the character of Christ, because what I'm doing is literally building a platform for them. I've got to be committed to this thing. I've got to be committed to walk in righteous authority. I've got to be committed to walk in unconditional love. What child is going to respond perfectly all the time? I'm my heavenly father's daughter, and I don't respond perfectly all the time. So there's an element of unconditional love that in the midst of our child growing and maturing in the things of God, we must recognize that we have to be so committed to their development so that they can fulfill destiny. Or we can compromise, but we got to recognize what we do in moderation, our children will do in excess, good or bad. If we're radically committed to God, and I'm not just talking about when we walk into church, I'm talking being radically committed to God when we're in home. If we're radically committed to God, guess what? Our children will go to a whole new level. 
But if we compromise, then our children will compromise in even a greater measure than we will. We don't want compromise because if we compromise, we will walk in crisis. The Bible says in James 1 and 7, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. We don't want to live in crisis. And see what happens when parents aren't committed to pour into their children in that way. We see a generation of young people that breaks our hearts. Every day in America, look at violence statistics, 135 children bring a gun to school. More than 208,000 teens aged 12 to 17 were reported as victims of family violence. 28% of youth in runaway shelters say that they were physically and sexually abused before leaving home. Six teenagers every day commit suicide. 437 children are arrested for drinking or drunk driving. 211 children are arrested for drug abuse. Now, we're talking about children and youth. How would those statistics change if we as parents, caregivers, grandparents, teachers, pastors, nursery workers, if we would rise up and have a heart to pour identity and destiny and biblical truth into the hearts of these babies in this first three years of life, how it would change their childhood years and how it would change their teenage years. It's so easy to be critical of a generation, but the generation is where it's at because we, in our generation, did not pay the price to empower them to succeed. We did not pay that price. Look at this. 12.8% of all births are to teenage mothers. 1,106 teenagers every day have abortions. Now, we're not talking about college career age here. We're just talking teenagers. 1,295 teenagers give birth and 7,742 teens become sexually active every single day. 3,288 children run away from home every day. They're doing that for a reason. It's time for reformation. It's time to be prophecy fulfilled. In Malachi 4, 5, and 6, one of my favorite scriptures, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Elijah is not going to manifest himself in the flesh in these last days. What it is, is there a prophetic anointing released upon our generation. And what's that prophetic anointing going to do? It's going to turn the hearts of fathers, not just natural fathers, but spiritual fathers and mothers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers. Look at this. Many fathers will say, if my child does this, then I will do this. No, it says, first of all, the hearts of the fathers must turn to the children. And guess what they're going to see in reciprocal? The hearts of the children turn back to the fathers. I have heard fathers who have adult children saying, my son or my daughter, or my, they're not doing this or they're not doing that. But see, the principle is still the same. As a father, I turn my heart first to a generation. My heart is to pour into a generation. If I'm not willing to pay the price first, they're never going to turn their heart to me. If I don't invest into them, I have not earned a right to speak into their life. And what will it do? It'll reverse the curse. Because if our hearts are not turned to a generation, there will be a curse or an empowerment to fail upon that generation. So I have a responsibility and an honor and a privilege to turn my heart to a generation. And if we can do this in the first three years of life, 
We can literally change a course of a nation. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised. Hath God chosen? What are the base things? In the Greek, it means no family, low-born, of unknown descent. I love this. Think of the children in orphanages around the world. Think of all the orphans because their parents had AIDS and they died. Think of all those who have no idea who mommy and daddy are. And God says, I'm choosing them. The things that are despised, it doesn't mean the things I hate. It means the things I take no account of. Oh, it doesn't matter. My, my baby's just 12 months old. It doesn't matter what I watch in front of them. It doesn't matter what I talk about in front of them. I don't give any account to what's happening in their spirit. But God says, I've chosen those things that which are not to bring to naught those things that are. See, when we value what God values, we release the power of God. When we honor what God honors, we release miracles to a generation. This is powerful, and you can do it for your child. You can do it for your grandchild. You can do it in your church nursery. You can pour your life as a spiritual father or mother to change the course of a life. In Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Child is a Hebrew word, an A-A-R, and it means boy or girl, and it means from the age of infancy, to adolescence. It says that I can train up an infant. I can equip and empower an infant. Man, I want to hear someday, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Why do I have joy? Because I've been faithful to train and pour in and love and empower an infant. Because we must recognize there is generational blessing. I talked a little bit earlier about generational cursings. What about generational blessing? Let's get on the blessing side of this thing. And the Lord appeared unto him, Isaac, the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee, and I will bless thee. Blessing is an empowerment to succeed. And I will multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. Ron, Matthew is going to be empowered to succeed because of you. That's how powerful this is. A parent has the ability to empower their child to succeed. And literally, God's hand of blessing is going to be on the child because of the parent's righteousness. It was accounted unto Abraham righteousness. And because of that, Isaac was blessed. In First Chronicles, talking about King David, as for me, David, I had hid in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and had made ready for the building. But God said unto me, you shall not build a house for my name because you have been a man of war. Solomon, thy son, he shall build my house and my courts. Simply, he was saying, David, you warred so Solomon could build. 
We as parents can war through and break off every generational sin and curse. We can war through and pay the price that maybe our parents didn't pay for us. We can do that and we can watch our children build what we never dreamed. And I'll tell you, there is a generational calling and a generational anointing. And maybe the generation before me didn't know how to fulfill it, but it was passed down to me. And as I take responsibility for that, I am going to empower my children. And as I war for my destiny, as I war for my identity, as I war to fulfill God's purposes in my life, I am literally empowering my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren to build. That's exciting. Now, how do we do this? We're still talking about protecting the home. A father is needed. Fathers are literally the source of life. Fathers, a male figure is that source of identity to a family. Now, it says that, that husbands, you're the head. Head is a Greek word that literally means source of life. And a lot of people think it means authority. And that's a great word too because authority is a Greek word, exousia, which means power, might, strength, ability, honor, and privilege. The root word is rabba, which means to increase in every aspect. So simply, fathers, you have the honor, the privilege, the right, the authority, the ability to empower your family and your children to succeed. God has put that in a man. God has put it in a father. This is powerful. And if a father rises up and takes responsibility for their infants, as well as their children, as well as their youth, they're going to truly see the source of life. What is placed inside of them impact their children. If the source of a river is pure, what kind of water is going to flow down that river? Pure water. If the source of a river is contaminated, what type of water is going to flow down that river? Contaminated water. You have the honor, men of God, to be that source of life for your family and for your children. We need a teaching like this for every man, not just mamas. Mamas flock to the things about their babies. We need daddies flocking to the things about their babies. Your child is dependent upon you. See, daddies, if you want authority with, you must take responsibility for your children, even infants. In Genesis 18, 19, talking about Abraham, this is a man God entrusted the Jewish race to. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. I'm glad I'm a woman. This is a lot of responsibility on men's shoulders. <laughs> to do justice, he is, listen, for I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. Who's going to keep the way of the Lord? The children. To do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he had spoken of him. Literally, your destiny as a man is being fulfilled by pouring into the lives of your children. I encourage you to look once again at the presentation slides to see all the references for these. Fathers may not necessarily know best, but he's certainly important, especially in a son's life. A new study suggests that boys who grow up without the presence of a caring biological father have twice the chance of ending up in jail by age 30 of those who live in traditional two-parent households. That's heavy duty. Dr. Kyle Pruitt says, There is no such thing as a fatherless child. Children whose fathers are not in their daily lives start looking for their fathers. As a clinician and researcher observing the connection that young children 
seek from the adult world. I've seen the search countless times. Children who can't find their fathers make one up or appropriate one to their liking. In a young child who has not felt some form of masculine nurture, nurture, we apply that to mamas, don't we? In a young child who has not felt some form of masculine nurture, the hunger is insatiable. The study continues. We have come to understand about the unique contribution that men bring to the lives of young children and how male presence works to promote development. Eight-week-old infants, we're not talking about eight-year-olds, Eight-week-old infants can discriminate between their fathers and their mothers and respond in a different way to their approach. Peterson and his colleagues found that the more actively involved a six-month-old baby has been with his or her father, this is past tense, this is how much the father has been in that baby's life before they're six months old. The more actively they've been involved with their father, the higher the baby scored on the Bailey scales of infant development. Literally, the baby's development will increase based upon the father's input into the life of that child. Examining two-month-old infants from middle-income two-parent families, Park and Swan found that the more fathers participated in bathing, feeding, diapering, and other routines of physical care, the more socially responsive the babies were. Why? They're secure in their identity. Trust is being established, which we're going to talk about in depth. Furthermore, a year later, these babies seemed more resilient in the face of stressful situations. Dr. Laura Schlesinger says, no explanation, I can word, use the word excuse, can fill the void in a child's heart where a daddy ought to be. In Psalm 78, 5, Talking about God's law. He commanded our fathers that they should make them known. Make what? Know the law of God to their children. Fathers, in Ephesians 6, 4, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Bring them up means to rear to maturity, to cherish, to train, and to nourish. Cherishing and nourishing Nurturing is not just a mama job, it's a daddy job. And if that's not poured into the life of baby, the baby is going to feel it emotionally and spiritually. In the nurture, what does nurture mean? Tutorage, correction, and instruction. And admonition, and admonition means calling attention to, understanding and advice, and commit. Commitment. When daddy is committed it will change the course of the life of that child. 1 Corinthians 4.15, for though you have 10,000 instructors, there's a lot of teachers out there, and I want to be one of those teachers. I want to be one of those mentors. But in Christ, you do not have many fathers. That's talking about relationship. And we can be those spiritual mothers and fathers as well. Now, that's talking about daddies, but mamas are important, too. You're important, and let me tell you about mamas. Proverbs 31.1. Now, most women absolutely hate Proverbs 31 because what woman can measure up to the Proverbs 31 woman? But it's very unique that it was King Numu's mother who gave him this prophecy. It was mama talking to her son. This is the type of woman you better marry. This is the woman you want. So mama is teaching her son, this is the type of woman you're going to marry. 
because she recognized that if you marry the Proverbs 31 woman, she is not only going to empower you to succeed, but can you imagine the blessing that's going to be upon my grandkids? I'm going to train you, son, the type of wife you're going to have. So we, through the ages, have tried to measure up to Proverbs 31 woman. And we're saying, why is that chapter in the Bible? Because when there's that type of wife and that type of mother, the children are going to grow up as godly seed fulfilling destiny. Talking to mamas, Proverbs 1.8, My son, hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother. And here the word law is dealing about the penitude or the law of God. Many women will say, if my husband isn't going to have devotions, I'm just not going to do devotions. Well, why would you deprive your child of hearing the word of God just because daddy isn't doing it? We must recognize our children need this poured into them, and we want daddies to do it too. In fact, we've already seen it's a, a role and a responsibility of daddies, but it's a role and a responsibility of mamas. But if you're in a situation where the daddy is not doing it, then take responsibility. Arise and fulfill your destiny. When I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I cannot use my husband as an excuse for not fulfilling my destiny. I have a responsibility before God to be obedient to him. And when I give birth to children, I must take responsibility for that child. We cannot have excuses in this thing. 2 Timothy 1.5. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in you, talking to Timothy, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded that it is in you also. There was a faith inside of Timothy. His father was not a believer, but he had a radical grandma and a radical mama in the Lord. And because of that, God so blessed Timothy to bring Paul as a spiritual father. So we must recognize we need some help in parenting. We are not all that. We are not perfect. We need help. We need spiritual mothers and fathers pouring into the lives of our children. One thing I learned, along, my children are grown up now, but I learned a long time ago that sometimes other people could impart into my child even more than I could. The key is, are they people that are committed to Christ? Is the truth of God on the inside of them? Do they love my child? Are they willing to pay a price for my child? When someone comes along that will love and nurture and care for my child, I'm going to welcome them into my life and into my child's life. Paul had spiritual sons, Onesimus, Marcus, Timothy. There are spiritual mothers, Phoebe and Junia. But the one I like the most is Onesimus with Paul. Paul met Onesimus in prison. And it said... He at one time was no good to anybody. But after having Paul as a spiritual father, it says he is of use to me and to you. We need him. He's needful. And he has my very heart. He has my very heart. See, sons and daughters have their parents' affection. I have some spiritual sons and daughters that have my heart. I'm not, I can't replace their mother or their father, but as I pour my life into them, they literally embrace my heart and my vision. How do you know if you have a son or daughter in the faith? Do they have your heart? Do they value what you value? Then you know you have a son and a daughter. Look at this. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 48 to 50. But he answered and said unto them that told him, Who is your mother? Who are your brethren? Or who are your brothers? And he stretched forth his hand towards his disciples and said, Behold, or look, 
and my mother and my brothers. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same is your brother, your sister, and your mother. Find those in your sphere of influence that have a heart to do the will of the Father, that are willing to model Christ before your children and get your children around them. They need to see more than mom and dad serving Jesus. They need to see as many people as possible modeling Christ. We have to make the most of every window of opportunity that we have. So let's go into some practical things here. There's four basic windows of opportunity. Number one is conception to birth. Number two is birth to age three. The third is childhood, and the fourth is adolescence. Now, this teaching is going to focus on conception to age three. Let's look at a window of opportunity. This is the span of time that cannot be recaptured or revisited. When I have a window of opportunity, I'm never going that way again. When a child is in my womb, once they're born, they'll never be in my womb again. Now, sometimes in the middle of the night, you'd like to unzip, put them in there, and get some sleep. But the fact is, they're never going to go back to the womb. When I have a child go off to kindergarten, they'll never be one or two or three years old again. It's what I do in that span of time. I can't recapture it. I can't revisit it. If I don't do what's necessary in that window of time, it will never, ever happen. And we can walk in regrets, but that's not going to do our children any good. What we must do is we must make the most of every opportunity. If you're listening to this and you've never heard anything like this, you didn't realize this before, then make the most of the opportunity that you're at right now in the life of your child. But this is the most important time is that first three years. A window is an opening for seeing or an opening for revelation, understanding, and application to one's life. So let's make the most of conception to birth. Look at this. Dr. Paul Warren says, the parents of well-positioned kids loved them and wanted them before they were born. Most critical was the father's attitude. Look, the mom is the one carrying the baby, but the research says that the most important attitude is the father's attitude. Why? Because they're the source of life. Because identity is birthed out of the father. The second most critical factor was the mother's attitude towards her unborn child. Your child knows before birth how you feel about him or her. From conception on, your attitude counts. Jeremiah 1.5, God is speaking and says, Before I formed you, Jeremiah, in the belly I knew you. See, in God, there is no beginning and end. Ephesians 1.4, you are chosen in him before the foundations of the world. Your life, everyone listening to this, your life is not a mistake. Your life is not an accident. Whether your parents planned you or not, God planned you. There is no time in God. He knew your destiny before you were even conceived in your mother's womb. If we would realize how valuable we are to the heart of God and be able to take that truth and instill it into our children, you talk about strong, solid children growing up in identity and security. David Chamberlain says, Psychology traditionally placed the beginnings of memory at about age three because few people have conscious recall of events before that time. However, an accumulating volume of research demonstrates memory in the first years of life and in the prenatal period as well. 
memory while the child is in the womb. Some children spontaneously recall birth events, even secrets, but expression of those memories is delayed until they can speak. Before they use words, they can express their memories nonverbally by drawing pictures, acting out scenes using pantomime, pointing to body locations, and by providing authentic sound effects for equipment like suction devices used at birth. These children warn us that early memory and learning are real in the womb. The fetus can actually remember what he's heard in utero. DeCasper asked a group of pregnant women to read a portion of a book. For example, Dr. Seuss, The Cat in the Hat. To read that book twice daily to their babies in utero over the last six weeks of pregnancy. Less than three days after birth, the babies listened to the same passage that had been read to them, plus a passage that had not been read to them. The majority of newborns indicated by sucking more vigorously on a pacifier a preference for the tale they had heard while they were in the womb. Like Mara and others, who study fetal behavior, DeCasper is convinced that learning does occur during the prenatal period. I love this next one. David Chamberlain says this, powerful. The documentation of learning and memory months before birth is surprising. Some of this has been made possible by direct ultrasound observations of fetal behavior. So through observations, they're watching these babies. Twins can be seen developing certain gestures and habits at 20-week gestational age, five months along, which persist into their postnatal years. In one case, a brother and sister were seen playing cheek-to-cheek on either side of the dividing membrane in the womb. At one year of age, their favorite game was to take positions on opposite sides of a curtain and begin to laugh and giggle as they touched each other and played through the curtain. Parents interested in prenatal communication have taught their prenates while their baby is in the womb, they're teaching it a game. Look. Parents interested in prenatal communication have taught their prenates the kick game. When babies kick, the parents touch the abdomen and say, kick, baby, kick. When the baby kicks, they move to a different location and repeat the invitation. Babies soon oblige by kicking anywhere on cue. Isn't that powerful? Now, if babies can learn in the womb, what about our newborns? There's ample evidence that fetuses are picking up information from the outside world. They're especially receptive to sounds from mother's body and the external environment. Hearing is one of the first senses. As early as 16 weeks, when someone is just four months pregnant, that baby can hear and begin to learn. A developing fetus begins to perceive the world outside of the womb through his or her fluid-filled ears. Powerful. Now, let's look at newborn to three years. This is so important because in this time, honestly, I believe it begins at conception, but we have an opportunity to establish trust, develop their personality, identity, their learning abilities, and even establish a spiritual foundation in their life. The foundation for a rich emotional life is laid early in the healthy baby. As successes in coping with challenges in the environment accumulate, the baby builds a foundation for optimism. I teach a lot about the difference of optimism and pessimism. You know, emotional maturity and emotional immaturity. Do you know where it begins? With a newborn. 
We can train our newborn to be optimistic, to love life. Baby's interest in pleasure and new stimuli are not biologically extravagant. If there is a dearth of sensory nutrition, development is slowed or the baby may even give up and die. In a foundling hospital we visited in an undeveloped country, there were no toys, no pictures on the wall, nothing for a crawling baby to explore, only one nurse for 10 babies. Every sort of stimulation was lacking, and the mortality rate was 50%. Because they were not poured into. That's Lois Barkley Murphy and Colleen Small. The foundation of trust, we'll see, really begins before the age of six months, but is established in the first three years. We learn trust through primary relationships and if my environment is a place of safety. If I'm surrounded in safety, it's going to build trust. When my needs are met, oh, my diaper is dirty, my belly is hungry, I feel scared, I need some security. Every time we bring security to our children and meet the even the natural needs of our children, we are creating a safe environment for our babies and it's already laying the foundation for trust. So they learn it through that and through those trusted relationships. Relationships must be the place of trust without fear of abandonment because the core of mistrust is abandonment. When I can't trust, I'm expecting to be abandoned. And where do children learn abandonment? In those first few months of life. The more trusted relationships are in an infant's life, the more rapidly trust is established. Look, the more trusted relationships. We need grandma, we need grandpa, we need Aunt Susie, we need our nursery workers, we need... Everyone that so loves these babies that they are trusted individuals speaking life over our babies. It builds trust in our babies. And we must recognize that we'll never establish identity. You'll never know who you really are without a foundation of trust. Our children will not know their identity without that foundation of trust. Another word for identity is individualization. And there's two aspects of individualization. One is the child is a unique individual dealing with life in unique ways. I see so many people, and I did it myself, comparing myself with someone else, trying to be like someone else, trying to have the gifts somebody else had, trying to function like somebody else. No, that is a person who's insecure in their identity. When I'm secure in who I am, I'm comfortable in my own skin. And we can train our little babies to be comfortable in who they are. So they can rise up in identity and security. So they learn that they're a unique individual. And secondly, they learn trust before the age of three. So for someone to truly know their identity, they have to recognize that they're a unique individual and that they learned trust before three years old. So if trust was not established on the inside of me before I'm three years old, it's going to affect my identity. And sometimes we wonder, sometimes I wonder why I struggled. It's because there was elements that trust was not established on the inside of me. I was abused from the time I was two and a half years old sexually. That will definitely affect the ability for a child to trust. So we have an opportunity to change the course for our children Individualization and separation, I'm an individual. 
The process by which a baby gains personal identity and independence. This isn't talking about an independent spirit. It call, it's a recognition that I'm different than my mom. I'm different than my dad. I'm my own unique individual. It begins about crawling time. When do babies begin to recognize that they're a unique individual? When they start to crawl. Guess what? I'm not carried around all the time. I can actually get somewhere that I want to go. It develops that independence. I'm a unique individual. And guess what? I'm still safe. I'm trusting those people around me. What this is doing is establishing identity in the hearts of our children. Its very beginning depends utterly upon the infant's primal lessons of trust. So we must establish trust before they ever even get to the crawling stage. And it's really actually very easy. By using these tools that we're giving is helping you to establish identity and destiny and value and worth in the lives of your child. What is trust? Dr. Paul Warren says, it's being confident that the other person will come through for me. I'm in a place that those important people around me will come through for me, but also being confident that I will come through for myself. And what happens, many people in adult years don't have the ability to trust other people, and they're afraid to take a risk because they don't even trust themselves. Why are they struggling with that? Because it wasn't established in those first three years of life. That's why it's so important that we make the most of this window of opportunity. This kind of trust will affect how capably a person can form intimate relationships. Look at the breakup of marriages. Look at what young people are dealing with. There's a whole hooking up culture in a teenage generation, in a college career generation, where it's sex without commitment, sex without being connected emotionally. Why? Because they never learned to form intimate relationships because trust was not established. If trust is developed, circumstances might be negative, but the instinct to trust and the core of identity is firmly rooted. They will bounce right back. What happens when I establish trust in the life of my child? As they grow, the ability to trust is a part of their very nature. It's a part of their very identity. And somebody might do something, and I recognize I can't trust them as an individual, but I can bounce back because I have the ability to trust. Maybe I can't trust you, but there's a lot of people I can trust. And there's people around me that I can trust. It's powerful. A psychoanalyst, Eric Erickson, wrote, Erickson proposed that the concept of trust versus mistrust is present throughout an individual's entire life. Therefore, if the concept is not addressed, taught, and handled properly during infancy when it is first introduced, the individual may be negatively affected and never fully immerse themselves into the world. Why is there so much depression? Why is there not vision? Why is there not hope in so many? Because when that trust was not established as a child, people don't know how to grow and immerse themselves into a culture without being absorbed into the culture and becoming a clone. Let's apply this spiritually. If I can trust my Father God, and guess what? 
If trust is established in that child in the first three years, it is going to be easy for me to trust a trustworthy God. If I trust my Father God, I will know that he will come through for me. And in true humility, I will know that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can make a mistake and my God is going to work on my behalf. I don't have to go make something happen. I can trust my God and he'll open up doors for me that nobody else can open. My God is committed to my success. But it's hard to believe those things when I don't have the ability to trust. My identity is found in him. Because remember, identity is birthed out of trust. So if I can trust my God, it will be easy for me to learn who I am in him. To the degree that I know and trust my God, I will walk in boldness and confidence. But to the degree that I cannot trust my God, I will withdraw in shame and fear. The importance of trust. Now, one word for trust that's used in raising children is a word called object constancy. And what object constancy means is that the object is constant or faithful to a promise to return. Simply, my mom and my dad are faithful to return. I am secure that if I don't see mama right there in the room with me, I know she's going to return. I can be in the living room reading a little book, sitting on a blanket, reading a book, and mommy goes into the kitchen and I don't see her, but I know she's going to return. That's trust. And even when a child begins to go through uh, what they call separation anxiety, when a child wants to be so connected to mama and be afraid to around others, what that mother does at that time is very crucial because if the mother feels an ego, oh, my baby only wants me, they're helping that child not develop trust. So I need to put that child with safe, trusted individuals so my child can learn that I as a parent am faithful to return, and if I leave them, I leave them with someone who loves them like I love them. The key is the child is left only in trusted places with trusted people, people that will touch them and hug them and affirm them in their identity and love them. What's so amazing is we see children, they, they run up and they grab and they hug and they love their teachers. Why? There's a trusted individual that shows them love just like mommy and daddy show them love. We hear messages of I love you and you're special, which needs to be heard from the very beginning so he or she can receive the message through more than one avenue. The more people telling your baby that they love them and they're valuable and they're special, that God loves you, he's committed to you, the more they hear that, the more trust is established. The opposite of this that erodes trust is called object permanence. Object permanence is when we never leave the child out of fear, insecurity, and perfectionism. Lord, forgive me, but that was me. If you weren't 18 years old, you couldn't even hold my baby. And I was living in a state, there was no family around, there was no one around, they were all strangers. I wasn't going to leave my baby with anybody. And literally what that did is it developed object permanence. It creates a fear when the trusted individual cannot be physically seen. Where's mommy? I start crying in fear because I don't see mommy or I don't see daddy. And the dangers of this are, this is a strong word, emotional incest. What is emotional incest? 
I have a baby and suddenly I don't have any time for daddy anymore. My whole life is absorbed into this baby. That's emotional incest. And what it's doing, it's hurting that child's ability to establish trust because I've isolated the daddy in the picture and daddy can't do anything good enough. Daddy, daddy can't change the diaper right. Daddy can't do anything right. And I have to do it all. I'm the whole source for this child. It puts a wedge between parents, which is damaging to the infant. It produces a fear of abandonment. And if the infant cannot see the one trusted, they cannot have a sense of trust and safety. So one of the best things we can do for our child is put our child in situations where they can be around trusted individuals and they might not see me every moment. If you have fear in this area, get grandma to come over or Aunt Susie to come over. Tell your little baby that you're going to go in the other room for 15 minutes. Stay in that room 15 minutes. Don't come out of that room and let grandma or Aunt Susie love on that baby. And after 15 minutes, come back to that baby. You'll start teaching that child to trust. The spiritual application to object permanence is I cannot trust God's word or promise. If I don't see it, I can't believe it. When battles come, I feel abandoned, fearful, and alone. You know, God can manifest himself. He can see miracles. God can reveal himself to you so much. And what happens? The second you don't get what you want, when you want, how you prayed, God doesn't love me. I can't trust my God. That is birthed out of mistrust and object permanence. We begin to doubt what God speaks to us. You could have this amazing prophetic word about your destiny and God's purposes for your life, and you walk away from that saying, did God really say that? He didn't really mean that. Not for me. Who am I? We begin to doubt that very first thing that was tempting Eve in the garden, hath God said. We look to others rather than to God, and we live in constant disappointment. Remember, if I cannot trust my God, my very identity in him will be distorted. And if a child cannot learn to trust, his or her God-given identity will be hindered. The reason we're teaching, the reason we have these equipping tools for parents, and the reason we have our, our curriculum for churches is we can equip people to begin to pour into the babies at this most crucial time of their life so trust can be established, so identity can be established, and they'll be able to walk out their, their destiny. It is the time in this first three years of life, a foundation of personality. You know, 75% of a child's personality is developed by the age of three. Personality is their needs-motivated behavior. They have learned ways to function to meet their needs through experience, their environment, and primary relationships. I learn the way to get my needs met, I do this. I scream, I throw a fit, I kick my legs on the floor, and then I get what I want. So now when I'm 8, 10 years old, I'm screaming, kicking my legs on the floor to get what I want. I'm 17 years old, I'm screaming, yelling, kicking, punching, trying to get what I want. I'm 30 years old, screaming, yelling, kicking, and punching, trying to get what I want. Because see, when I was a little baby, that's how I had my needs met. That's what develops a personality. It's critical what we do in these first three years. Eric Erickson said, if an infant's physical and emotional needs are not met sufficiently, the infant completes his or her task, developing the ability to trust others. However, a person who is stymied in an attempt at task mastery may go on to the next stage, but carries with him or her the remains of the unfinished task. For instance, if a child is not, if a toddler 
is not allowed to learn by doing, the toddler develops a sense of doubt in his or her abilities, which may complicate later attempts at independence. We need to help them face challenges and figure it out. Let's look at mental and learning abilities, natural and spiritual. We have learned that memory and learning begins in the womb, so it's safe to conclude that a newborn baby can learn and be taught. We can help develop their mind and we can develop their spirit man. I love it in John 6, 63. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Whenever we take the word of God, everything we have done in these equipping tools is taking the word of God and making statements, identity statements or scriptural beliefs that we can pour into the lives of our children because God's word is spirit and it's life. Look at this. And this is Ann Sevenson says, Ever look into a baby and wonder what she's thinking? Well, there's a whole lot more going on in there than previously thought. According to the newest brain research, babies' brains begin crackling with activity before they're even born. At birth, an infant's brain houses 100 billion nerve cells or neurons. Immediately, connections or synapses be between the cells form as the baby experiences her surroundings and makes attachments to caregivers. Look at this. As, I, as they have experiences and they're connected to mommy and daddy and grandma and Aunt Susie, it literally helps develop their brain. This network of neurons and synapses controls various functions such as seeing, hearing, and moving. By the age of three, a child's brain has about 1,000 trillion synapses, twice as many as an adult. At three years old, a child has twice as many neuron synapses as we do. And we think we have to wait till they're three or four to start training them and teaching them? No, we need to be training them while their brain is developing. But if a child's brain, look, if a child's brain is not stimulated from birth, these synapses don't develop, impairing her ability to learn and grow. By creating that trusted environment, by speaking the word of God and speaking their value and speaking their worth and teaching them and reading to them and training them, what it does is it literally empowers their brain to develop and produce more synapse. It's powerful. Reading aloud to children helps stimulate brain development, and you can do that in the womb. Yet only 50% of infants and toddlers are routinely read to by their parents. While a baby is in its most helpless stage, unable to sit up or crawl around or stand and walk, the brain cells are being produced at a phenomenal rate. So rapid is this process that the brain grows to half of its adult size by the age of six months. So we throw them in the nursery, in our churches, and stick them in a swing, wind it up, and wait till church is over. We are bypassing the most important stage of their life from newborns to six months when their brain has actually grown to half the size of an adult. Whew, this is powerful stuff. During this growth, the treatment and experience provided, deliberately or incidentally, is extremely important to the baby's later learning ability. We can make smart babies by pouring into them in the first three years by reading to them. This rapid brain growth occurs only once in a lifetime. May I repeat that? This rapid brain growth occurs only once in a lifetime. 
Patterns for much of all future learning are established during this period. Brain research has shown that certain sequenced experiences during the growth period of the first three years will promote well-adjusted, balanced learning ability. And I'll tell you, if I want to teach my baby something, I want to teach him the word. I want to tell them that God planned them and purposed them before the foundation's world. I want to tell them that their life is not an accident. I want to tell them that God has a valuable, special plan for their life. I want them to know the character of the Father God. I want them to know the character of Jesus. I want them to know the character of the Holy Spirit. Let's train them in that knowledge as well as natural knowledge. Let's look at some more about knowledge. Whom shall he teach knowledge and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? This is in the Bible, Isaiah 28, 9. Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. Literally, a baby that is weaned from the breast is old enough to not just hear and develop their brain, but understand doctrine. We have led little two-year-olds to Jesus. They understand that they need Jesus. They understand that Jesus came and died on the cross and rose again for them and that they can receive Jesus Christ. They can learn and understand doctrine. They can be filled with the Spirit. They can speak in other tongues. We're talking about a prophetic, apostolic generation of babies arising because we're pouring into them at the most crucial time of their life. We relegate everything to when they're older. No, let's train them and teach them doctrine now. I love this scripture, 2 Timothy 3.15 in the NIV. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. Well, that means three-year-olds. That's what that must mean. No, let's look at this word, infancy. It means babe, child, infant, young child. Look at this. This is, this is the Greek it also means an unborn child, embryo, a fetus, a newborn child, an infant, a babe. So God knew that even that child in the womb from infancy could know the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. My goodness, even in the womb, we can start pouring that into our child, and it's literally the foundation according to that word, infancy, an unborn child, an embryo, a fetus. Literally, we're establishing that foundation in utero, but also in the first three years of life, causing that child to be wise unto salvation and having faith in Jesus Christ. What is faith? It's trust. We are establishing a foundation of trust in Jesus Christ through the Word of God and Scriptures. We are changing the course of that child's life forever and ever. We are changing the course of that child's children's life forever and ever. What an opportunity. What an honor. So I'll end with the name of our curriculum, Who is Teaching the Babies? Am I going to be one who answers the call? to pour our lives into a generation of babies.